How often do you think about that which has been conferred to you or given to you in Christ? How often do we sit back and and meditate on that which is ours because of Christ? It's really a good question. And I think that this morning, we're going to look at some of those those blessings that have been given to us in Christ. Um, They're presented in in Romans chapter 5. That's where we'll be this morning if you want to go ahead and turn there. I'm not going to read the text just yet. But we're going to be looking at some of those blessings that we have as Christians in Christ. And so before we, we get started and we move on, I just wanted to kind of lay the, the context that leads up to Romans chapter 5. I, I think it's very important that we do that. According to the Apostle Paul, who is also the one who wrote the letter to the Romans, salvation is a, it's a gracious gift of God. It's a gracious gift that is received by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, according to the Apostle Paul, our standing before God, it is not contingent upon our performance. Our standing before God does not stem from some inherent value that we possess. I am not in Christ because I provided something. And so, according to the Apostle Paul, it's not based on our performance, but truly it's based on the performance of another, not ours. And so, when you read through the first five chapters of Romans, you really begin to see that Paul really has one thing on his mind as he begins to write. And in the first three chapters of Romans, we see that he's presenting a need. He's, he's making it known that there is a great need that everybody has. And that need he presents as a need for justification. We all need to be made right before a holy God. We see that in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, all the way through Romans 3.20. Paul, he's just bringing his charge and his indictment. He presents a need. There is a great need, whether you were Jew or Gentile, whether you have the law or you don't have the law, there is a need that you have. And he's eliminating any thought that might begin to creep into somebody's mind thinking, well, I can do it myself. We cannot. And so, in Romans 1, 18-3.20, Paul's showing that all of mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, with the law or without the law, they stand condemned before a holy God. And this is the need that Paul presents. You and I need to be made right with a holy God. None are exempt. All are guilty. But then Paul, and remember I said this justification, that's that one thing. So he presents our need for justification. But Paul doesn't just leave us at our need. He doesn't leave us hanging, saying, you have a need, good luck. He then moves on in presenting the way of justification. He showed us our need, and then in Romans 3.21-4.25, through 4, He's showing the way of justification that one is justified, that is declared righteous before a holy God, and it is solely by faith alone in Christ alone. He presents the way of justification. There was a need, and here is the way to fulfill that need. As I mentioned, it's not by our works or some inherent quality. That's what Paul was combating to his uh, Roman audience. Uh, which consisted of both Jew and Gentile. The Jew might be thinking, we have the law, we're good. 
But Paul began to show that the way of justification is by faith alone and not by the works of the law. And what does he do in Romans 3.21-4.25? He begins to draw on two Old Testament titans as his example. He brings in Abraham and he brings in David to strengthen his argument to show that one is not made right before a holy God by anything that they do. He began to show how Abraham believed God. He believed the promise of God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this is significant to Paul's argument because what Paul is showing is that Abraham was made righteous before God 14 years before the rite or the the ritual of circumcision even came into being. And it was some 430 years before the law had even come in. So Paul is demonstrating that Abraham, contrary to popular thought at the time, he was not made righteous before a holy God based on doing these things. That was usually the the Jewish perception of, of Father Abraham. He was a righteous man because he performed and kept the law. But he was declared righteous 430 years before the law came into being. And so Abraham was not righteous by performing either of those things. And then he shows how David lived by this principle as well, this principle of justification by faith alone. He quotes Psalm 32, verse 1 through 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, David writes, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So he shows us our need for justification in 118 through 320, and then he shows us the way of justification in 321 through 425. Which brings us to our text today. Paul begins to show us in Romans chapter 5 a, an aspect of justification that I think that we forget. We as Christians, we, sadly, we, we forget it. We let it pass over us. We get so caught up in the the practical aspects of Christianity, of of doing the Gospel, that we actually forget what the Gospel brought us. Who, Who we are before a holy God because of Christ. These objective realities that have been accomplished by Christ, we tend to forget them. And this is major what Paul is introducing in Romans chapter 5. Especially today when many consider their justification, they chalk it up to a mere doctrine. It belongs on the bookshelf in a leather-bound book or it's only brought out in seminary settings, but it really has no significance in the life of the Christian understanding what it means. Those are for the hoity-toity smart Christians. But that's not so, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. He wants us to know about our justification and what stems and flows out of our justification. Who we are. So it's not just merely a doctrinal truth, although it is that. It is doctrine and it is truth. But it is something that we should know. There are great and glorious consequences behind understanding this objective doctrinal truth that really affect our past, present, and future of the Christian It's not just some hoity-toity knowledge. There are benefits for the believer. So one major thing is that it it produces hope. Being aware of our justification before God, it produces hope in the life of the Christian. And that's the context. So Paul, he presented our need for justification. He presents the way of justification. 
And there is a shift. Now he is writing to those who have been justified. And that's where we are in Romans chapter 5. And I'll just read the text. We'll be focusing on just five verses this morning. So if you'll read along with me, if you have your Bible. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so I presented the the context. The Apostle Paul, he's beginning to speak to those who are are now justified. That's really unique. You see that in the the first, you see Paul's pronouns begin to change. There's a whole lot of you and them and the Gentiles. It's everybody else. and, And then here he's, now that we, therefore, since we've been justified. He's speaking to Christians in this verse. I would say that Romans, beginning in chapter 1 up to, to 4.25, that's to the lost, to the unbeliever. He's, he's preaching the Gospel. And here, he's preaching to the Christian. His pronouns changed. It went from you and them to we. And he begins to show us in this verse, uh, beginning in verse 1, that we have tremendous blessings that stem out from our justification by faith in Christ. He presents the, the reality of the objective legal implications that come from our justification. In other words, what he's doing is he's showing that our standing with God is one, is, it's one that is, uh, in which we are declared to be not guilty. That's what justification is. It's a declaration of God in which he acquits the sinner. It's a one-time act of God. That's what justification is. As I mentioned, it's a legal term. So Paul's showing our legal objective uh, implications of justification. That one act, that once and for all act by God where He declares the sinner not guilty. You're free to go. And it's unique because this is, remember Paul's Jewish audience that was present, This is something, justification is something that the Jews relegated to that day of judgment. That comes later. But Paul is speaking, it happened the moment you believed in Christ. It was done. Finished. That slamming of God's gavel came the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. One time, no more. It's already been rendered to those who trust and believe in Jesus. And so Paul, he's starting off. And he's already, as I mentioned, he's established his point. There's a need for justification and the way of justification, as I mentioned. He's now writing to Christians, those who have been justified. That's why he begins with his his therefore. He's breaking away from that. Okay, I presented the need. I presented the way. Therefore, now that we've been justified, he's moving on. In other words, this is Charlie's translation. Since we have been made right with God by faith in Jesus, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul, he's just doing, he's establishing our new and permanent legal standing before God. 
This is the reality of justification. You have a new standing before God. And that's what Paul is reminding them of. And then he's reminding that this in this standing you have peace. And I think that it's important to define what this word peace is. Is it that inner subjective uh, tranquility? That peace that per, surpasses all understanding? It is not. Although we can have that peace, according to Paul in Philippians 4, 6-7, we ask God in prayer. But that's not the peace that Paul is talking about. He's not speaking of some inner tranquility. When the world is crashing down around, I have inner peace. He's bringing to the forefront of his hearers' minds the fact that you have peace with God, not the peace of God. You have peace with God. And this peace that Paul is speaking of, it's really uh, a description of two raging parties where now there is that is ceased and there is this calmness. There is peace that exists between those two parties that were once at war. That's this peace that Paul brings in. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you now have peace with God. So those two raging parties that were at war have been brought to terms of peace. And so you may be thinking to yourself this morning, but Charlie, I've never been at war with God. I've never been at war with God. But the fact of the matter is, that's precisely who you and I were. That's what makes this objective reality that Paul's presenting so wonderful. Because that's exactly who you and I were. We were born, we're rebels, born onto the battlefield. Have you ever looked at it like that? We're not born neutral characters in God's screenplay. We're not born as neutral characters. We're not the heroes. We're the enemy. We're the rebel. Paul mentions in, in Romans 1 that we've exchanged and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And so in doing that, we not only broke God's law, but in doing that, we attempt to overthrow the sovereign. We attempt to... We're, we're committing cosmic treason. Paul is showing that in Romans chapter 1 with this battlefield imagery. You're all born rebels onto this battlefield. You worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We've committed cosmic treason against the sovereign who rules. And in, folks, we attempt to dethrone him. That is war. That's who you and I were. There is war that exists. So we break God's laws and we attempt to overthrow him to establish our own rule. So we're engaged in battle. We see this in Romans 1, 18-3.20. And also, you can look in um, Romans chapter 5, verse 10 and look at the, the description that the Apostle Paul gives to us of who we formerly were. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were not friends of God, we were not the, the neutral agent in between, we were not on the fence trying to make a decision, we were the enemies of God engaged in warfare against our Creator. We were in rebellion against our Creator, which constituted us as enemies. 
And so again, we see what Paul's opening with. He's, he's showing our need for justification. And now the Apostle, he's writing to those who stand justified. Remember that. That's the context of this peace. There has been peace brought in between these two warring parties. And Paul's reminding them of that. Since you've been justified, you need to know that you have peace with God. There's been a ceasefire. There is peace. This is the only logical conclusion that comes from justification. And I think if you want to write something down about verse 1, you can sum up this first verse like this. Now that you have been made right with God through faith in Jesus, God is no longer against you. That's what Paul's saying. That's why he goes on in Romans 8.31. And what does he say? Chapters 5 through 8 are really... They, they're the group that stay together. And Paul, he's driving home assurance and hope. That's why in 831, Paul can say what? God is for you. He's introducing that. In verse 1, he's, re, he's relaying the reality. Hey, God is not against you anymore. There's peace. And this happened through faith in Jesus Christ. You can say that God's wrath is no longer coming for you. It's not coming. We see in Romans chapter 3, verse 24 through 25, that that wrath that was once counted against us, it was coming for us, it was guaranteed, was averted. We see that. How? Through the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He took that wrath upon Himself and satisfied the Father. So Paul's bringing that reality back in. That wrath is no longer coming for you. You've been justified in Christ. Through faith in Christ, you have peace with God. God is for you. God is for us. It's a tremendous blessing. I know I'm not the only one in my faith walk who at days feels as if God is not for me. That He's coming for me because I messed up. That's just not the case. That wrath that was once yours has been commuted to Christ. God didn't turn the wrath off. His Son bore it for us. And Paul's reminding us of that reality. Because there is no more wrath, there is peace. And so we see that Paul, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, he says, through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so Paul, he's continuing to show our, the glorious blessings that, that are just pouring out from our standing with God. He shows that our we have peace with God and that's the foundation and it's found in none other than Jesus Christ. And now he, he's introducing more and he says, also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Which I think begs the question, what does he mean? And I think that we can start by eliminating what Paul doesn't mean. The grace mentioned here by Paul, it's not the usual definition that we're used to hearing, uh, which is, um, the way that God acts toward us, um, nor is it the free gift. But Paul, what he's really doing is he's highlighting this, this new realm or this state 
by which you've entered in through Christ. There's this new realm that you stand in before God. And it's, you notice that in verse 2, he doesn't let it go. It's through him. Who? He's continuing Christ. This is also through him. You've entered into this new realm in which you stand before God. This is the grace in which you stand. And so we see Paul's giving us this imagery that we've been brought or ushered in. That word access, I don't think it does it justice. The meaning behind it shows that we've been brought into this. It wasn't something that I I pried and gained my own way into. Obtained access. It's not a favorable translation to me. It sounds like something I did. But the, the original wording, it carries with it, you've been brought in. You were led into this. Somebody brought you in. So Paul's revealing that the Christian has been given peace with God and access into this realm of grace. I like John Stott. It's in which we stand. It is our privileged position of acceptance before God. So Paul is... See, you have peace with God and he's saying Christ also brought you into a realm in which you are accepted with God. This is what happened when you trusted in Christ. I know it's hard to accept being fallen creatures because we don't see it. We didn't get a a gold membership card, right? But this is the reality. This is the Word of God. This is who you are. You trust in Christ. This is you. You stand in that realm of grace. this, This grace in which we stand. We've been led in because of Christ. He took us by the hand and led us in. You picture the courts of a dignitary, right? Could you imagine trying to walk into the White House yourself? You'd be shot on sight. Now what if somebody who was on the inside brought you in? You are now in a privileged position before the leader of the free world. And they give you an introduction. See imagery that Paul has in mind here. You've been led in to the throne room of God's grace. And this is where you stand. The object of access, many think that it's, it's God. Paul, many think that Paul's saying we have access to God. I could see how that translation uh, could work, but I don't, that's not the translation that I personally would hold to. The translation I would hold to is that realm. Paul is demonstrating that you've been transferred into this realm of grace. Is there access to God in there? You better believe it. But I don't think that that's what Paul has in mind. He's, he's speaking specifically. He says this grace in which we stand. So the Christian has been transferred over. (laughs) But you might be asking, Charlie, that's all good and all, but why is that of great significance? What's so important about me being in this realm of grace? Well, let's go back to consider who we were again. It should be noted right off the bat that this new realm or this state in which we stand, this, this state of privileged acceptance before God is not one that we were naturally in. As I mentioned, Christ brings us into it. It is not one that we were born into. That's why I mentioned we don't have any inherent qualities within us that gave us acceptance before God. We needed to be brought in. So this state of grace in which we've been brought into through faith in Jesus Christ is not one that we can lay claim on and say, well, by God's providence, I was born into it. No, you were not. 
That's not who we were. Paul in Ephesians 2, 3, what was our natural state? He says, by nature, you were children of wrath. That's who you were. That's our natural state. Goes back to the battlefield imagery, right? We're not neutral characters. It's not, there's no gray area. It's black and white. By nature, you were a child of wrath. And so Paul, his point is that through him, that's Jesus, we now have access. And so it's special because this realm, what it is, it's contrasted to the realm in which we were transferred from. A realm that the law, it was the law's domain. And you know what the law does to you? It convicts you. The law is that slick, dressed, good at his job, D.A., who has all the evidence he needs to bring any charge that you would be found guilty. That's the domain that you were in. That's who ruled there. The law. You were transferred from that domain into this domain of grace. So this new realm, what's so special about it is it's a realm where the threat of condemnation no longer lives. Remember, this is just my wording, is God's not coming for you. This is how I interpreted it when I was preparing. God's not coming for you anymore. It's a terrifying thought, is it not? That's why the author of Hebrews writes that it's a frightful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But that's not us anymore. You're in Christ. The wrath was done away with. It's not coming back. That would be blasphemy to say Christ took it away, but it could come back. And it breaks my heart when you hear so many Christians use that as motivation to spur other Christians on. To me, this is the motivation that I need. It's done. I can live for God now. Amazing. So the realm that we were in was the domain of the law. We stood condemned and dead. And so this realm is one where grace is now the characteristic and grace reigns. It, it rules. We see this in, in 521. Paul, I really like this. We, we had a really good Bible study a few weeks ago. There's a plug if you want to come through. We're going through Romans. Paul, he begins to show uh, the two Adams. I, I love it. The first Adam and the last Adam. And so we see in 521 that Paul, he's, he's mentioning that this new realm, this state, you're in the last Adam now. It's, and it's where grace reigns. And he contrasts the two Adams. The first Adam, he fell in the garden. And through him, sin and death and condemnation entered in. And that was yours. And you inherited that. That which the first Adam committed was imputed to you. You are the natural inheritor. Him being the federal head representing all of mankind in His fall, you fell as well. But then He goes on to show what the last Adam does. And then He contrasts it in in the last Adam. He succeeded. When He was tempted in the garden, He succeeded. And all that He earned is now yours. That which was imputed by the first Adam, that was yours, but you've been transferred. And that which the second or the last Adam accomplished, that's now imputed to you. And he lists grace. He lists righteousness. He lists eternal life. That's the realm in which we stand now. So Paul, he's really driving it home. 
The Christian needs to know this. Through Him, you've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which you stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We are no longer the children of wrath. So it's in this grace and where we stand. And D.A. Carson, really smart guy, um, he just summed it up. This grace in which we stand, it is continual participation in the blessings secured by God's grace in Christ. I wish that I could have said something like that. I felt dumb. Here I am interpreting the passage and I have all this writing and I read this quote and it's like, he shut it down. This grace in which we stand, it is continual participation in the blessing secured by God's grace in Christ. God now deals graciously with you. The wrath has been dealt with in Christ and Christ brought you in. You stand before God in continual acceptance. That is the state in which you are in. You are justified. There's peace with God. He's for you now. And then we look at the second half of verse 2. And he says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Thus far, Paul, he's already revealed a treasure trove of blessings that belong to the Christian. And included in that treasure trove is hope. I think at this point we can say that the those previously mentioned blessings that Paul told us about, the peace and the access into this grace in which we stand, those happened in the past. You were declared righteous. You were justified. And God is at peace with you. Sure, there is an aspect of where they are happening now. But Paul says they happen. They don't unhappen. You're justified. You're right. There's peace. Can't undo that. And there is a continual effect now. And so what Paul is doing, though, justification is one time. He begins to show there's also a future aspect that impacts you. There's a future aspect to this justification. Which brings us to the point we have to look at what the hope and the glory of God is. And I think that first look at the word hope. It must be mentioned that this word hope, it's not like the hope that exists in the world. Uh, That's kind of like a wishful thinking. You could imagine you have a plan to go out with your family and to play in the park and have a picnic and just make a day out of it. You see some clouds lingering off in the distance and you say to yourself, I hope it doesn't rain today. There's a level of uncertainty in that that hoping. That's not the hope that Paul's speaking of here. The hope of the believer is one that is built upon sure confidence. It's a confident expectation of the things to come. It's not just something that we look forward to, but it's something that we look forward to because it's something that will happen. And that's what Paul's saying here. We don't have wishful thinking in the hope of the glory of God. No, we we have a sure, confident expectation in the glory of God. This is another thing Paul's saying. You, You have a confident expectation of things to come. You've been justified in the past. You're right with God. You have peace with God. You've been transferred into this realm of grace. And you have something to look forward to as well. So it's not wishful thinking though. And this word that Paul uses, rejoice, it's actually, I think some of your translations might say boast. Just keep that in mind. I I love that translation so much better. Just hold on to that though. So this hope in the glory of God what it really is, is it's a state of God-likeness. 
It is that very state that was once possessed but lost at the fall. I'm not speaking of deity. I don't believe that we are little gods. But you go back to the garden where perfection was. But we know that that was lost in the fall. Paul mentions so in Romans 3.23, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But here he's saying now we hope in the glory of God. We boast in that day. So what he's revealing is that the Christian should be one full of boasting or a joyfully confident in the glory of God. Why? Because all that was lost in the garden due to the fall and Adam will one day be reversed finally and totally. It will be fully realized and experienced. That is the guarantee that justification has offered to you. You have much to look forward to. You boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is not it. This is not the end. So that glory, we see, the Scripture tells us, Pastor John read this morning, that it's revealed in creation. The glory of God is revealed in creation. Although it is veiled, it is revealed. And we know that this, the glory, it was revealed in Christ. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration. It affected Peter so much to the point that he wrote about it later in his life. I didn't follow no made-up or cleverly devised tales. I saw it. I was there. I was there when my Savior shone bright like the sun. So we see that glory revealed in Christ when He was transformed temporarily and His face shone like the sun. Even the Apostle Paul himself, he'd caught a glimpse of this glory on, his, on the road to Damascus. It knocked him down. And this glory was so bright that it blinded him for three days. The glory of God. And it will eventually be totally and finally unveiled. We see through a dim window now. Paul writes, there was just so many verses for me to add into my sermon. Paul writes about this a lot. The only conclusion I can come to is in the Corinthians. Remember when Paul's writing about him. So I know a man who went somewhere. I can't tell you exactly, but Paul, he's writing. I, I want to see that again. I can't wait. I boast in that day. That's what I have to look forward to. My justification, my right standing before a holy God because of Jesus Christ, I will see that day and I long for it. I boast in it. So it will be tied totally and finally unveiled. But not only that though. All that was lost in the fall, it will be reversed. And we share in that. Paul, he writes that we will share in that glory. Paul, he makes this point in um, Romans chapter 8. And we see this in, in verses 17, 18, 21, and 30. Paul makes that point that not only will we be there and see God face to face, but we will be transformed and we will be like Him. Glorified. We will receive a glorified body. And Paul, he's writing on this point. In Romans eight seventeen. we see... We hope in the glory of God. Why? He says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And then in 8.18, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
And so Paul's carrying this idea that we not only will stand before God face to face, we will see Him, we will be like Him, we will be transformed. This life is not the end. All that was warped and fallen and broken in the garden will be no more. That is not the permanent state that the Christian has to face. There is hope. It is not the end. This is what Paul's hitting on in this, this word that he uses. We, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. You have much to look forward to in the future. We will be set free. We will be receiving new glorified bodies and we will see God face to face. It's amazing. You think about all that restraints and hinders you in the here and now. I do every day. I'm a wretch. There's so much that I stumble on. I long for that day. Lord, I can't wait to this little thing that causes me to keep falling and preventing me from being what You created me to be. I cannot wait until it's gone. So all that restrains and hinders us from doing what we were created will be no more. You think about that. What, what hinders you? What sins do you struggle with? You can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God knowing one day that will be no more. And Paul, he makes it known elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 2.18 that that transformation has already begun now though for the Christian. Although not perfectly, we call it sanctification. It is that process by which we are being conformed into the image of Christ. Paul, remember in 2 Corinthians, he speaks of being transformed from one glory to another. But one day, what Paul's saying here, one day it will be fully realized and completed. No more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, no more. I was reading this, and do you want to know something amazing? Look at Romans 8.19. I never, I never really caught this before. But Paul, he's, he's speaking uh, in that, that future glory again. See, he won't let it go. You see how Romans 5 through 8, those three chapters, Paul's goal is assurance. I'm assuring you, you will see that day. And we see in, in Romans 8, 19, he says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Even creation was fallen at the garden. It, it was warped. And Paul writes that even creation longs for that day when the revealing of the sons of God will be. Which I was thinking, I was just blown away. If creation is longing for that, how much more the people of God? Creation longs for that day. We have much to look forward to. And, and I was thinking of Pastor John's sermon last week. Uh, the day of the Lord when, when Christ returns. How he mentioned that for the Christian, that's not a fearful day. Remember, those outside of Christ, they're crying. Going, they run into caves. Let the, the mountains fall on us to hide us from Him. But what does He tell the believer? Stand up. Your redemption is drawing near. Paul has that same injury. It's not a fearful day. It's a day that we long for. If you wanted to look at it, it was in Luke 21, 25 through 28. 
You can listen to Pastor John's sermons on sermon.net. It's a plug there. I'm an elder. I have to do that. It was a good sermon too. Very encouraging. And so that's what we boast in because of Jesus. We have much to boast in. I will see my God face to face and I will be glorified. That which hinders me now, that which I suffer with now, will be no more. As I mentioned, Paul says, this is a momentary affliction. It's only 80, 90 years. That's nothing compared to eternity. Before I move on to the next couple of verses, the Apostle John also had a way of writing about this. In 1 John 3, 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So this is not just some concept that Paul cooked up. That's what it means to boast in the hope of the glory of God. We have much to look forward to that stems from our justification. Because you were made right with God, you have a lot to look forward to. It brings us to Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. (laughs) I was laughing because at this part, I I imagine Paul here is one of those late-night infomercial salesmen. You know what I'm talking about. But wait, there's more. So Paul, you've been justified. You're made right with God. You have a future hope. You boast in the hope of the glory of God. But wait, there's more. So Paul, he's... He's really selling it to us here. As I mentioned, those are things that we can look back to and look forward to. I was declared righteous, and I'm, I boast in the hope of the glory of God. And Paul, I think that this is Paul's pastoral heart here. He comes in, and, and he brings to the reality, I'm not a stupid man. I understand that the, the problem of suffering still exists. Well, the gospel and your justification affects that as well. So we see Paul turning. There's the past. You justified. There's hope in the future. You boast in the hope of the glory of God. You will see Him. You will be like Him. But wait, there's more. I understand that you guys are suffering. And so we see Paul's pastoral heart. He shows that the benefits of justification don't just affect our past and future, but they affect our present as well. Paul is aware that sharing the good news might raise some questions Especially from those who push back. That would be their greatest question. And isn't that our greatest question when confronted by unbelievers? If God is so good, why is there evil and suffering? So Paul, he didn't forget that reality as well. But wait, there's more. And so Paul, he says that we know something. Did you notice that? In verse, in verse 4 or 3, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing. He says that we know something. And what is that something? Is We know that God uses suffering to create that which otherwise we normally do not possess. That's what Paul's getting at here. We know something. This suffering that exists, I'm not ignorant of it. I'm not blind-eyed towards it. But I can rejoice in the midst of suffering. Why? Because I know that God is using it. He's producing that which is normally not there. And he mentions it's endurance. 
God uses trying times. And you could slap whatever, sufferings, trials, tribulations. And why does He do it? He uses it to produce in His children the ability to remain under pressure without succumbing to it. This is what we would call the doctrine of perseverance. God works through these things and He keeps His children. He keeps them. This is the perseverance of the saints. These afflictions or sufferings, they can take on any form. I just wanted to mention, they can be ailments, financial woes, loss of job security, loss of popularity, whatever you may have it. Addictions. These sufferings come in many forms. Another Charlie translation. I just call these sufferings life lived in a fallen world. As I mentioned, Paul, he gave the past blessings, the future blessings. Oh, but we're still here. Life lived in a fallen world. And so, but Paul, he's revealed something to us. That perspective to these sufferings is key to the Christian. The way you view them makes all the difference. As I mentioned, he says, we know, knowing, we know. And what we know is that these sufferings, what, what they don't do is they do not overthrow those blessings that Paul just established. In some weird way that's contrary to us, they actually enhance them. It's crazy the way God works, right? We would think that these things would rob us of those blessings and the confidence that we had and the, the blessings and the joys that Paul showed us. But Paul's actually saying, nope, we rejoice. Why? Because God's using our suffering and they don't take away those blessings that I just gave you. They actually enhance them. They magnify them. It must be said as well that the ability for the Christian to remain, it doesn't come by some white-knuckling experience created by the Christian. Sufferings, what they do is they create an opportunity. It, it sounds crazy, I know. But they create opportunity. Opportunity for what? Opportunity to run to God, not from Him. That is something that the Christian realizes. In this trying time, this suffering and affliction, oh, there's my cue. I'm running back to my God. They do not, and they should not, I want to encourage you this morning, they should not encourage you to run from Christ, to rely on your own merits and your own strengths, and somehow think, oh, well now, somehow I'm out of this realm of grace. Somehow I've been unjustified, unpeaced with God. I'm left on my own because it's hard. God is surely mad at me. No, that wrath was done away with. He's now dealing with you as a loving father, according to the author of Hebrews. He's working something in his children. I would actually argue and make the point that it is more fearful to live a life of smooth sailing. Why? Because he doesn't discipline and work in those in whom are not his children. So Paul's writing that there's something that we know. God is working in this. I like Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, and he said it perfectly. He said, afflictions drive us back to God. Why? For they reveal a fresh need. And so what we see is that what we can take away, what Paul is saying is that trials make us dependent, not independent. God's not saying, here are the balls in your court, run with it. Figure it out. 
They make us dependent creatures in the midst of our suffering, but by making us, uh, they make us dependent. So for the Christian trials, they bring this opportunity. They bring focus and they realign our perspective back onto that eternal perspective. I would say that suffering makes us weak in all of the right places. What do I mean by that? I mean that suffering strips the Christian of those strong things in our life, those things that we may be relying on, my popularity, my charm, my good looks, my intellect, my job, my wealth. Suffering strip us from those, those strong things in our life that we rely and depend upon. Health, wealth, jobs, popularity. And sufferings, they leave us with those weak things. And what are those weak things? Those weak things are the things that rely on Jesus. Sufferings keep the Christian at the cross. They keep them running back to Christ. And I just have to mention today, make no, ex- no, make no mistake, no one is exempt from suffering. You notice that. The unbeliever suffers just as much as the Christian. But remember, Paul says, we know something. I know something. And there are suffering to varying degrees. I understand that. Being an elder, I pray for you all. I know some of your ailments and your afflictions that you go through, and I weep with you. But I'm here to tell you that run to Christ. God is working in you. No one is exempt from these sufferings, even the Christian. And then continuing on in this chain of virtues created by Paul, he shows that, um, or created by suffering, Paul shows that endurance also um, produces character. So he's, he's in this chain of virtues. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And that's another word for hope, that word, or uh, for proof, that word character. It's another word for proof. And it's a word that was used to speak of testing metals to determine their purity. We've all heard this before as Christians. Um, I'm assuming so. Maybe I'm wrongly assuming so. But if you haven't, it's testing of metals to determine their purity. And this is done by extreme heat. Do you understand that? To melt away those impurities. And this is the word that Paul uses. Suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Proof. It produces proof. At this point, I think that we can say that we rejoice when in the cauldron of affliction. Why? Because anything that is false is being burned away from the Christian. That's why I said afflictions, they strip the Christian of those strong things and it just leaves us with Jesus. Those things that we usually tend to hold on to, afflictions, strip them away. Oh, but I thought you had me. No, Jesus is like, I'm the only one that does. I find it amazing that Paul doesn't say that we're going to have a smooth life. But in fact, he actually shows your life is probably going to get turned up a notch, but don't worry. God works in his children. Remember the being transformed from one degree of glory to another? This is usually how God does it. So nobody is exempt from this suffering. At this point, we rejoice in that cauldron of affliction because anything that is false, it's being burned away. So we see now our sufferings have purpose. That's what Paul's saying. You have the past hope, the future hope, and where you are now, you can rejoice because God is working in you now. 
Your sufferings, they're not the result of bad luck or bad karma. Isn't that what you hear the world say? Wrong place, wrong time. Bad luck. But what we see is a loving father who works in his children. It's contrary to what the world thinks. As I mentioned, suffering to the Christian, it does not diminish the Christian's hope, but it strengthens it. It amplifies it. It magnifies that hope. What hope? That hope in the glory of God. I will be there. It's amazing. So I just wanted to share the trial-soaked Christian. They are those that we see, I believe, in Luke 8.15 in the Lord's parable and those that... The author of Hebrews mentions, but look at, I'll just read it in Luke 8, 9 through 15. When Jesus is describing the parable, he says of the sower. And when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root, for they believe for a while, and at the time of testing they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. There's those things that, for the Christian, affliction strips away, but here the Lord's showing us, no, they clung to those things. And look at the good soil, though. As for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Afflictions produce fruit in the life of the believer. And then Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. See, we're not in this alone. Our Lord went to glory through suffering. What makes us think that we're any better? Despising the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why will we see the end? Because he who began a good work in us will complete it, Philippians 1.6. God works through suffering in the lives of his children. And I'll just, we're in the last words, we're in the home stretch. In Romans 5, 5, what does the apostle write? He says, so he's continuing that chain. I'll start in four. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so this last link in the chain of virtues, our hope that is produced, it will not put us to shame. Why? Because the gospel of amazing grace is what we've been saved by. The Christian is not one who needs to fear shame on that day. Remember in Romans 1, Paul, he says that according to his gospel, his Lord Jesus will judge the secrets of men. That's a terrifying thing, right? But remember who he was talking to in Romans 1. He's not talking to the Romans 5 people. And that's why he goes on to say, we won't, our hope won't put us to shame. We're good. You're good in Christ. Why? Why? Because our hope is built upon the gospel. 
and God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And it will ensure that we will see that day. We will see God face to face and we will be saved totally, finally and fully. That is what Romans 5 through 8 is. Paul is reminding them, you will see the end. That's why in Romans chapter 8, you see the golden chain of salvation. You have been predestined. You've been called. You will be glorified in the end. You will see that day. Paul's ass- Why is he speaking this assurance? Why is he not speaking fear and condemnation that they may live as the children of God? Because we've been set free from that. He's encouraging them. You're free. Live for God without the fear of the law creeping in. You can do what you were not able to do before. You can live for God. Go and make His name great. And look forward to that day. So we will be saved totally and finally and fully. And how are we assured of this as Christians? I would just mention that Paul makes it known. He says that God's love for us has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This is a supernatural working and supernatural office of the Spirit. I can only speak from my personal experience. When I'm in the midst of an affliction, it's so crazy. I can just feel like the world is crashing down and it's just as if it comes pouring in. Oh yeah, God loves me because of what Christ did. I really have no other way of explaining it. But Paul mentions that there is a working of the Spirit. That is one of the the offices of the Spirit is reassuring you. You are the children of God. And we see this in 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So this office of the Spirit reminds us. I know that you've experienced that. And then I will just close it out the reality that Paul shows is there is objective evidence as well, and I will not expound upon it, but I will read in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 12. So we have that Spirit, the Spirit of God, pouring out God's love for us in our hearts. And then there's an objective truth as well that we can see. We see God's love demonstrated. He says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a right person, Righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, we didn't clean ourselves up and get to a point of approval. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hmm. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Our hope does not put us to shame. We have much to look forward to. And I hope that you go home and you contemplate on that reality. Your justified state before God because of Christ and Him and His finished and perfect work. You're good with God. God's good with you. He's not coming for you. You have much to look forward to. You can live for God. You're free. That's Paul's triumphal entry kicking in the door in Romans 5. You're free. You've been justified. You're free. There's no dancing in and out of that realm in which you've been placed. You're free. Which brings me to my next (laughs) closing point. If you are not in Christ, you cannot make yourself right with God. 
I plead with you today. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. You can have freedom. You can rejoice and boast in the hope of the glory of God. Thank you.